as the revolutionary authorities seize basically everything. She's allowed to choose two things. Uh, you know, her husband has been murdered, as, as has her father. And she chooses this painting. Good evening, and welcome to Things, a global conversation presented by Old Salem Museums and Gardens and the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts. I'm Daniel Ackerman, Chief Curator at Old Salem and Mesda. In each episode of Things, we will aim to use objects to draw out larger connections between people across historical, geographic, social, and political lines. In today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at two very different objects and how their makers, the French artist Jacques-Louis David and the Scottish turned Virginia cabinet maker John Shearer, navigated the complicated politics of their era. Joining us for this conversation are Catherine Carlisle, director of Mesda Engagement, and David Pullins, associate curator of European paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. For those of you joining us live, we welcome your questions. Just feel free to use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen, and we'll answer them during the discussion after our presentations. Tonight, we'll begin with my colleague, Catherine Carlisle. Catherine is the director of Mesda Engagement and is, among many things, the primary voice behind our weekly Study South newsletter and the museum's at Mesdagram Instagram feed. And when we're not in the midst of a global pandemic, Catherine is also the driving force behind our signature public programs, including our weekend symposia, our annual design seminar, and the biennial Mesda conference. Catherine, thank you so much for starting us off tonight. And just to remember for anybody joining us live, that if you have any specific questions for Catherine, we'll be happy to address those in just a while. Just enter them in the Q&A. Catherine, good evening. It's great to have you. Hi, Daniel. Um, thanks so much um, for giving me an opportunity to speak with everyone tonight. I'm very excited to be here. Um, and I am going to go ahead and share my screen to get started um, on this topic that we're talking about this evening. Um, let me go pull that up just a second. So Considering the topic that we're focusing on today, um, neutrality, I'm actually going to present an object by a craftsman who, as you'll see, was really not neutral at all. John Shearer built this desk and bookcase in the first decade of the 19th century. The, um, the desk was constructed in, about, in 1801, and then the bookcase was added later in 1806. And it stands today, um, as you can see in this image, in the Mike and Carolyn McNamara Southern Masterworks Gallery at Mesta. Um, and it is considered to be uh, one of John Shearer's early great works, um, one of the pieces that's built toward the beginning of his known output. Um, every piece of this uh, desk and bookcase is worked with really incredible detail that is um, from the pierced trellis all the way down um, to these kind of beefy uh, shell carved legs that end in ball and cloth feet. And, and when you turn the corner in the gallery and you see this piece, you kind of hardly know what to look at first. There's just so much going on. But if you move up from the feet, um, you may notice something particularly unusual. These 
vertical aligned drawer pulls. It's um, unusual, um, but perhaps kind of clever, maybe ergodynamic. Um, but then how about these timbre slides right here? They have this um, kind of theater curtain design uh, carved into them. The configuration of the bookcase itself is very pleasing. It's um, known to be taken from directly from Chippendale's director. But then if you look very carefully, right above where um, the doors come to meet, right here, you will see the smallest, most easily missed carved anchor centered in the cornice molding. So on the one hand, this anchor may have been meant to represent um, the Masonic symbol, one that would have been easily recognized by Masons and non-Masons to mean um, hope and a well-grounded life. And we see this image a lot in American furniture. But what's unusual is if you look very closely, there's this thin line kind of draping right behind the anchor. And I'll go back so you can see it right there. And there it is in red, I've highlighted it for you there. Um, you'd almost be tempted to totally dismiss this line behind the anchor if it hadn't appeared in so many other works by Shearer. Um, the addition of this little line turns a simple anchor into a fouled anchor. It's a symbol, uh, it was a symbol of the British Royal Navy. And considering Shearer, who was a Scotsman, he was from Edinburgh, had um, immigrated in 1775 to revolutionary America, what are we to make of this symbolism? We, um, why would he have been, why would he have felt so compelled to include it? Um, was it risky for him to publicly acknowledge and express, you know, his allegiance to the British crown during this period of strong political division? So I'm going to um, talk a little bit more about what we know about Shearer specifically in a moment, but I think it's first important to acknowledge that we don't know everything or really even all that much about him yet. Um, but for the most comprehensive look at Shearer in his work, I you know, very highly recommend the book, The Furniture of John Shearer by Elizabeth Davison. Um, she has very carefully thought about each piece of known furniture and has really beautifully compiled it into this book. Um, and that includes a lot of the furniture I'm going to be showing you today. But even Miss Davison notes that Shearer kind of appeared out of nowhere in Virginia by 1775, and then he kind of disappeared after 1818. But his output during those 43 years is really fascinating. Um, what we do know is that the first dated pieces of furniture by, uh, by John Shearer are this desk and bedroom table. Both include his name, the date, 1798, and both marked Edinburgh, the city where he came from. And in the case of this table, it's also marked Martinsburg as well. And this is a reference to his home at the time, Martinsburg, Virginia, now West Virginia in Berkeley County. Um, I have it marked right here in blue on the map. Um, and then there is this desk and this table stand, both including his name, both dated to 1818, and both thought to have been made in Loudoun County, Virginia, um, marked here. So it's from his work that the puzzle pieces of his life and his whereabouts start to kind of fit together. And that is um, 
we generally think, you know, that the first half of his career was spent in Martinsburg and Berkeley County and the second half in, um, in Loudoun County. To appreciate how remarkable his work was at the time he produced it, I just want to kind of set the stage a little bit. And, and I'll reference Ms. Davison again, because something that she points out is that, um, and I think it's so true, is that Today, we have a tendency perhaps to simplify the political allegiances of people in, in this country, in the US, in the years that follow the American Revolution. Like every TV show and movie says, you know, these scrappy colonists beat the big bad British. And then all they had to do was focus on how to make a new country and a new government. And of course, it, it was much more complicated than that. It's not like every loyalist just evaporated after the war ended. And in fact, during the American Revolution, the terms loyalist and Tory became pretty interchangeable. Um, the Tories were, of course, um, this old conservative traditional political philosophy in England that developed into a political party. They were strong monarchists. They were conservative economically. And they um, importantly emerged as very hostile to radical reform, particularly during the French Revolution, um, which came slightly after the American Revolution. And in the new United States, the Tories found some common ground with the brand new Federalist Party, which is the first political party in the US and was founded by Alexander Hamilton um, in 1789. And hallmarks of Federalists include prioritizing businesses, um, banks, manufacturing, um, national over state government, um, maintaining a strong army and navy and in world affairs, aligning with Great Britain and opposing the French Revolution. So some common ground there. And then in opposition to the Federalists, we have the Jeffersonian Republicans who champion straight states' rights and actually very much sympathize with the French revolutionaries. Um, and in fact, Thomas Jefferson called Federalists aristocrats, monocrats, and Tories. So all this to say that the new United States was filled with pretty extreme partisanship in the very period in which John Shearer was active. That is again, 1775 to 1818. So I wanna take a closer look at the desk and bookcase now um, and see what it can tell us about the man who made it. There are um, several very unusual traits to Shearer's work. But one of the most unusual is the number of times that he signed his pieces. I have a few shown here on the screen. Um, this desk and bookcase includes these inscriptions um, and 20 signatures by Shearer. And this might have been because Shearer was a furniture maker, but he was also working as a home builder at the time. And as boards were being milled, he may have simply marked the boards with his name just to ensure they didn't get picked up or handed off by some other builder. But that does not explain some of the other markings on this piece. For example, on the inside of the back of the prospect drawer, we see God Save the King, 1801, obviously a very proud Tory statement. Um, and even in fact, on a later piece, he explicitly signed from a Tory, vive le roi, God Save the King, by me, John Shearer. 
but still one of the most extreme inscriptions found on any of his works is this image, um, which is on the back of the top desk drawer on the desk and bookcase. And what we see here is a devil and he's poking a man in the rear and there appears to be something on the man's head. Um, written alongside the drawing, uh, Shearer has written, um, down with the cropper of Ireland, cropper is repenting and his master is angry. Um, the cropper or the croppy was the name given to Irish rebels who were inspired by the French revolutionaries. They didn't wear white powdered wigs, but instead they cropped their hair very short where the name came from, um, just as the revolutionaries did in France. There's documentation that tells us that um, punishment for the croppy's rebellion was pitch capping. Um, and forgive me for uh, how grotesque this is, but pitch capping was actually pouring hot pitch or tar on someone's head, um, all but ensuring a pretty agonizing death. What we do know, um, there's the image again, but what we do know is that local Federalist leaning uh, Martinsburg newspaper published several lines of an Irish folk song seen here, um, calling the croppies traitors to the king. The chorus repeats the line, um, down, down, croppies lie down. So what this tells us is that Shearer was pay paying very close attention to the news out of Britain and reacting to it with these inscriptions on his furniture. And in fact, um, this piece is dated by Shearer himself to 1801. Again, um, this is the, the desk part of the piece. In 1801, um, this is the same year that the Irish were forced to send representatives to the English parliament. That is after the Irish parliament was abolished. That is after this Irish rebel rebellion was so violently put down. And with all of this stuff, John Shearer, he was following it and he was reacting to it. Um, this is all the news of the day. And in this case, he was actually, you know, kind of celebrating this really brutal treatment of the Irish, um, Irish revolutionaries. So what do we know about who commissioned this piece from John Shearer? Well, uh, true to form, he left us very little doubt that it was made for a Mr. Pendleton because um, of course it's written right on the interior of one of the drawers. I apologize, I don't have an image of that signature, but who was Mr. Pendleton? Um, what did he think of all these messages hidden within his desk and bookcase? Um, Pendleton was Philip Clayton Pendleton of Martinsburg. He was a lawyer and he was a leader of the Federalist Party there. And at the time, Berkeley County was pro-Federalist primarily for economic reasons like securing trade routes um, or trade markets for um, the region's products. So perhaps Shearer found some common ground with his Federalist clients. Um, he did start to include the federal knot, this quatrefoil design here um, in the desk pull. Um, but, you know, it's possible that uh, Pendleton never saw the crappie cartoon on the desk, but, but even if we did, even if he did, we know that it didn't bother him too much because he returned to Shearer five years later in 1806 for the corresponding bookcase. 
Um, and he may not also not have noticed the anchor as well, but I do want to mention this symbol one more time. The bookcase is dated to 1806. Again, the desk 1801, the bookcase five years later. And of course, it just so happens that in October of 1805, the British Navy secured its position as the most powerful naval force in the world after Admiral Horatio Nelson led his fleet to a very glorious victory over the French and the Spanish at the Battle of Trafalgar. So that was in October of 1805. Admiral Nelson suffered wounds uh, from that battle and he later died. And this news was treated very unusually by the Martinsburg papers when a special edition um, one sheet was published with all the details. And that was on Christmas day, 1805, so the very end of the year. Um, so while Shearer may not have had any direct ties to the British Royal Navy, he would have felt extreme pride in its supremacy, um, just as other Britons did. And he also would have likely felt extreme pride in Admiral Nelson, just as other Britons did. So um, in the end, I think we can fairly state that John Shearer may have found some comfort in his political situation in Berkeley County, um, being Federalist leaning, but really with few exceptions with this piece and with um, other works that came later, we rarely see him reacting uh, to news of American politics. We really see him reacting um, in fairly close time to news of British politics. Um, he was a devoted Edinburgh Scotsman, and that's what we know. Um, and, and then again, not only was he a skilled craftsman, but he used his craft as a way to you know, mostly subtly, mostly secretly, sometimes not always, express uh, his very strong loyalist beliefs, which we know he held um, throughout his, his working time. And I think that um, he does not really stand today as an example of someone who practiced neutrality, perhaps under a guise. Um, he was a man who had strong political allegiance and national pride, but was not in a place where he could safely express them. So that's a quick intro to John Shearer. Thank you uh, so much, Catherine. I mean, what a, what a strange object uh, in the collection. And I think what's really interesting is that um, here we are, we're now gonna connect this thing to perhaps the least obvious thing possible. Here is a uh, Virginia, West Virginia desk and bookcase. Um, and we're going to go ahead and connect it to um, this incredible painting at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And in fact, joining us now from New York is David Pullins, who is the associate curator or an associate curator of European paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Uh, David studied art history at Columbia, the Courtauld Institute of Art, and received his PhD in art history from Harvard University. Before joining the Met, he was an assistant curator just a few blocks away at the Frick Collection. And at the Met, he is part of the team that oversees that institution's iconic collection of European paintings, including this painting, Jacques-Louis David's monumental double full-length portrait of Antoine and Marie-Anne Lavoisier. David, thank you so much for joining us this evening from New York. 
Thank you for inviting me. I thought it was such a wonderful initiative. I've been, I've attended several of these uh, things, global conversation uh, topics, and the topics themselves are so capacious and they really allow for really, uh, I think a new take and, a, and the pairing of individual objects but taking a large frame has been great. And also it's been wonderful to get to know colleagues uh, at Mesta as well, Daniel and Catherine. This, is, this has certainly been fun. Um, and I was excited to, to speak about uh, this painting this evening in part because it falls within things I'm certainly interested in, but also because my own uh, kind of penchant for uh, decorative arts as well, including uh, American ones. So I was happy to learn more about John Shearer in the process. So here's the painting in question. Uh, you'll see some images of it in the gallery in a bit, but it's it's huge. It's you know it's it's life size uh, and sort of over life size because the figures are not you know to, they don't fill up the entire thing. So this is the painting that uh, that uh, that I was asked to speak about. It's uh, certainly one of the great works uh, at the Met. Uh, it's really one of the great neoclassical paintings outside of France. And this is Jacques Louis David's portrait of Antoine Laurent. Uh, Lavoisier, who's generally known as the father of modern chemistry, and his wife, uh, see, who you see here, who was also a scientific collaborator. Um, it's heralded usually as a landmark of Western portraiture, in part for how it turns on its head traditional formats, and it did that at a moment right before the French Revolution. Um, so as you can see here, and I think I'll kind of walk you through the portrait a bit and then look at David's career in general, because I think it's that combination that's probably useful to think about. So as you can see here, the format was a shocking one for a couple that were not royal sitters. They weren't even really uh, that high kind of socially. They were quite privileged, but not, not at the level of the court. And you can see the kind of ways that Dubby would have been thinking about a full length portrait like this. The general audience in France would have expected the sitter to be correspondingly uh, high up the ranks. And this, for those of you familiar with English portraits, uh, is, is, more, is, is a sort of more known type, type. but in France uh, was pretty unusual as was the intimacy between the couple, which was seen as very uh, unusual for its period. Moreover, of course, that's the sparseness of this image, the sort of cerebral emptiness of the upper register of the painting, her comparatively simple garments, and then the scientific instruments that announce that these are sitters who are rational, modern, they're associated with profession rather than just being uh, aristocrats. So no longer ancien regime, but heralding something that's new. Um, and in this way, the sitters themselves have been kind of conflated with the story of the artist, Jacques-Louis David, who's generally seen as this pivot between the Baroque uh, and Austin regime kind of painting to the 19th century uh, and to uh, modern, uh, modern painting uh, through the French school. So neutrality, um, the um, theme of this evening, is something that has certainly been closely associated with neoclassicism more generally. And I think that's useful probably for both of our objects to think a little bit about. Sort of like science, neutrality um, is meant to be even keeled, unemotional, blank, maybe even a little cold. That's usually the problem we have with visitors who come into the neoclassical gallery is it leaves, it leaves them with nothing. And that's, there's a sort of deliberate mode of calm uh, to that. 
But this evening, of course, we want to flip those terms uh, on their head a bit to question them. Uh, and in fact, uh, this is something that we've been doing as we reinstalled our neoclassical gallery recently here at the Met. Uh, this is it underway. It's now finished. Uh, the painting is back in its frame. But this is just to give you uh, a sense of we've been kind of reevaluating what neoclassicism uh, might mean in our presentation. Um, so how might neoclassicism be a kind of guise for disinterestedness, a screen behind which political motivations could be built, uh, a way of whitewashing, in fact, and classicism, if neoclassicism, if it has a color, it's, it's probably white. Um, and and what, does that, what does that mean? Here you can see some of our galleries where we're thinking about that and how these themes, and this is things that we're now presenting in the text of these galleries, how these themes of abstract principles uh, rationality often overlap with kind of racialized thinking, imperialism, exploitation of colonies, and enslaved labor uh, throughout the world, maybe not happening within France itself, but rather outside. That's to link also to other things that have been happening in this uh, series of talks uh, that you've uh, been participating in. So to return to our portrait beyond uh, the obvious markers we've noted, it's allusion to kind of aristocratic portrait, uh, just to tease out one particular example uh, that's relevant in this question of how this seemingly uh, neutral uh, depiction in some ways uh, is one that actually can have embedded in it quite a bit of uh, kind of uh, power structures. And one of those, just to point before speaking to, about David more generally, is in fact this white muslin dress uh, that Madame uh, Lavoisier wears. It was very fashionable at this time. It's seen as very simple, neoclassical, taking its cue from uh, antique statuary. It certainly was revolutionary in terms of abandoning kind of corseted uh, profile of an earlier generation of only a few uh, years prior. But it's also a fabric that was very deeply tied to global trade, both the colonies in India, which is probably where her fabric would have come from, um, but also uh, the West Indies, because that fabric usually traveled uh, in various forms from uh, India to Africa, where it was exchanged for uh, enslaved peoples who were then brought to the West Indies. And in fact, that fabric itself was often associated with West Indian Creole women, uh, as you see here from the slightly earlier painting uh, that depicts a woman in the West Indies. And in fact, by the end of the 18th century in France, this kind of white dress actually had the kind of frisson, the little excitement of actually kind of playing with these kind of colonial encounters. Um, so while, uh, this painting that you know I, that I'm presenting you as our prompt. I wanted to kind of step out a bit um, about, but why, in its own moment, the painting itself became uh, something of a problem. Um, we know that Lavoisier was a scientist, but he was also uh, a tax collector. He's also someone whose fortune came from uh, taking tax on any number of things that come in and out of Paris in particular. And it's this double-edged sword of his identity as someone quite connected uh, within the uh, government, not necessarily close to the, to the king himself, but rather the crown and the structure that supported his scientific endeavors that was uh, sort of the problem. And it's for this reason that we know that this painting, which must have always been geared for the Salon, the annual uh, exhibition of paintings 
in Paris, it was pulled almost, uh, you know, sort of days before. On August 10th, the salon opens later in the in the month of August. Um, on August 10th of 1789, the director of Royal Works wrote to the uh, Academy of Painting, advising that in light of recent recent events, uh, certain prudence and circumspection should be taken with regard to the salon display. And he advises that in fact, portraits, specifically this one, uh, should not be included in light of public opinion. Quote, I imagine that Monsieur Lavoisier would be the first who would not wish for this work to be exhibited. And this is because of this kind of one-to-one -one sense that people there would see him, see Lavoisier and, and, and be angry. Um, this is because of the fact that Lavoisier, although history has shown he actually was a pretty relatively on the scale liberal uh, in his thinking socially, um, he was deeply tied to a certain amount of political unrest. And in particular, uh, in the summer of 1789, uh, his role as director of the office that administered gunpowder um, was extremely pressing, specifically three weeks before the fall of the Bastille. On August 5th, Lavoisier had ordered the removal of several hundred barrels uh, of inferior gunpowder to have that replaced with a better uh, dry, very good musket powder. However, public misperception uh, led in such a way that um, it was rumored that he did this to de deprive Paris of its means of defending itself, the, the people of defending themselves, and riots erupted uh, in response. So the result was that the painting was not exhibited at all. It was pulled and never exhibited public until 1889 at the Exposition Universelle, uh, which is famous, maybe more famous for its uh, having been the cause for the Eiffel Tower. So 100 years later, it is finally uh, shown. And Lavoisier himself, um, by 1794, uh, was on the same day arrested, tried, and guillotined, along with 27 other members of the same rank, including his father-in-law. His property was largely confiscated, though his wife continued to live on until 1836, restituting much of uh, the collection that they had lived with uh, and the, even the scientific instruments that they had built. What's remarkable, meanwhile, is that David, this is sort of a blip in, in his story, really, because he continues to ride the tides of politics with incredible uh, success. And it's this relationship to the artist as an individual and both John Shearer and David are these remarkably kind of idiosyncratic, uh, slightly uh, sort of odd people personally, like prickly, it seems, from what we can tell, personalities. Um, but how someone might survive all of those political wins uh, in subsequent uh, decades. And this is just to run you through very quickly. I wanted, I liked this comparison mainly because it shows that David's not the only one. Shearer figures his way. There are people making, I love this object, it sums up so much. It's a, it uses the new revolutionary calendar uh, that was established by the government, um, but it's made on a piece of Sev, the royal manufactory of porcelain that couldn't have been any more distant from revolution, and yet they managed to re repurpose themselves in such a way with a little, uh, little red cap there, uh, all the emblems of the revolution. Similarly, David makes his way uh, through this which is actually to say we should jump slightly earlier. David himself emerges from a totally different world. This is not what the David that most people learn in history books. This is a really odd version of David, but this is when he's still working with the painter Francois Boucher, who was someone who you know, is associated with uh, the previous generation and the Rococo. 
It's actually a painting he continued to have in his studio for some time, which is interesting, and it shows uh, his sense of an inheritance from a previous generation. David's breakthrough, the kind of thing you associate with him, is, of course, something like this. But by the same token, that's exactly the kind of painting that when we teach art history is way too easy to just say, oh, it's the sign of revolution, it's the break of revolution. This is in fact a painting shown at the Salon. You see it up there, it's very big, it's huge, it made a huge impact and was commissioned and paid for by the crown. So that is to say, he is working for the government, the uh, royal government, uh, rather than necessarily being on the ramparts of a revolution in this moment. This is, of course, also precisely the time in which the Lavoisier portrait was painted a couple few years later. There we are, just to remind you. However, as revolution uh, takes place, you know, the, 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 or at least the monarchy is, is overthrown, David quickly reformulates himself uh, in such a way uh, that he not only reformulates his politics, but even the nature of the kinds of things uh, that he produces. And I think that's really interesting. Um, he adopts uh, all kinds of other formats, including his ability to design festivals. This is one of many, these kind of crazy uh, revolutionary festivals, the Festival of the Supreme Being, in which, you know, the kind of God is replaced by reason, etc. Um, and he designs, you know, the, the costuming, the props, all of this, the staging. And one of his most famous paintings, The Death of Marat, there on the right, was meant to incite anger and, and uh, uproar over the, the murder of Marat, was actually intended as a kind of publicly displayed banner uh, as much as it was uh, a painting. So this is to say he changes his format. Uh, accordingly. However, uh, with the fall of Robespierre, with whom he was very closely associated, uh, when Robespierre falls in 1794, uh, David is actually put in prison and he spends 1794 to 95 there, but quite defiant, uh, also kind of evidence of lax prison procedures uh, for certain special individuals. David painted this famous self-portrait during that time. And I think there's something of Shearer's kind of fierce personality uh, in this image. This was painted while David was in prison. And here, just to give you a sense of kind of complicated visual culture of this moment, the way in which the revolution was kind of incorporated into people's daily lives visually, both the rejection of the past there in this quint, uh, print on the right that's kind of, oh, what kind of antiquity, what kind of old thing and newness, uh, and even marking the guillotine there on the left in these remarkable earrings. However, most, probably most remarkably, you have David in prison here in 1793. He's been a supporter of the revolution. He's managed all of these things. When, when Napoleon comes to power by 1800, he has turned himself into the ideal figure for Napoleon. Um, and by 1800 is closely associated with him, essentially as a role as a kind of propaganda maker, which he was well trained for, thanks to having uh, worked for the previous uh, iterations of the government. And that was useful to Napoleon, especially because essentially he was creating a whole iconography, etc., out of absolutely nothing, uh, and the need to establish a sense of um, importance, power, etc., based on antiquity, and hence neoclassicism came in as a very useful tool. Here's an image of the Met of people absorbing that kind of, uh, that kind of rhetoric uh, visually. This is, of course, this image of Napoleon crowning Josephine and also his wife. Uh, he invites the Pope, but the Pope doesn't get to crown, rather, uh, Napoleon crowns himself. And then finally, after Napoleon himself uh, falls, 
this is just given the quickest term so that I don't go over uh, time. When Napoleon himself falls David uh, in 1815, takes exile in Brussels uh, and uh, establishes a, a last iteration of his life where he adapts himself yet again by painting both members who had of Napoleon's elite, so portraits like the one on the left that were people he had known or whose government kind of connections he knew previously in France. But then he also develops this very strange kind of mannerist Hellenistic style here on the right at the end of his life uh, as he kind of finds a final way uh, to uh, develop a neoclassical uh, antique language in a way that will adapt. So here finally, just to, to return to that last portrait, um, this kind of sense of this being something that was a false start, it was about to be put on view in the salon and then pulled. Um, for the sitters and for the people who organized the salon that year, perhaps was, uh, you know, it was, it was a huge uh, disappointment. For David, no doubt it was at the time, but as we can see in the subsequent decades, David himself managed quite adeptly to uh, modify sort of chameleon-like uh, through these different regimes, serving their needs uh, as, uh, as they needed, as he identified their needs and, and, and found it within uh, neoclassical language. So, that's, I, let's see if I can figure out how to get us back to not just me. <laughs> you know, that is just absolutely fascinating. And I, looking at that painting on the rack in the gallery, um, on its way back to being hung, it, it strikes me that it is uh, one of the few things that is actually about the same size as the John Shearer desk and bookcase, which is a little over 100 inches tall. I mean, these are two completely, um, completely monumental um objects i'm gonna go ahead and bring Catherine carlisle back now and you know our our conversation this evening is about neutrality and yet as you say david style is itself not a neutral um concept i mean it's this thing that can actually be sort of shifted around to suit its needs and i i wonder you know to what extent is is a work of art like the Lavoisier's or the Shearer Desk and Bookcase, you know, is it patron-led versus process-led versus artist-led? I mean, what's the interplay there um, between all of these forces that are that are sort of um, at, at work? I'm, I'm happy to, to start with that one. I think it's um, such a fascinating question. And, and David, I'm glad that you address matters of style um, with David. Um, with with Shearer, he's very much working in this um, Chippendale style, this Chippendale style furniture. Um, and this was not, you know, at the time he was at the time he was working, this was not the new kind of popular taste at the time. Federal style furniture in America is what was popular and what was um, reflective of this new patriotism that was being felt um, in America at the time. Um, so you know, this Chippendale style furniture was actually starting to become quite old fashioned. Um, it would have been more suited to uh, conservative people that were likely his clients. Um, as I as I mentioned before, you know, he's working in this this 
part of Virginia that is a little bit more conservative, more federalist leaning. And so I think that he was able to align um, what he knew about making furniture in this particular style in a way that um, it appealed to his clients in the area in which he was. So it is sort of vaguely political in this way. I mean, he's not adapting based on um, new furniture that would have been made around him that he may have seen. He's very kind of steadfastly fixing to this particular style of furniture. I think it's very purposeful. Um, I would say for for this painting, it's actually they're very complementary in a sense because of the different way that this would be a way to look back to Chippendale rather uh, than to, to Sheraton or something sort of more forward looking. In the sense, picking David as the person to do your portrait uh, in this moment was absolutely, you couldn't have really picked someone more uh, kind of on the vanguard uh, of things. Although one of the interesting things is he wasn't actually such a tried and true portraitist. Um, there were actually, and as we've studied this painting more, we've realized the degree to which actually because women painters in 18th century France could not paint history subjects like David did of Death of Socrates, etc., women were actually leading the genre of portraiture. And he seems to have leaned quite a bit on inspiration for things that had been done in previous years by those women painters. In terms of the forging their own identity, definitely the Lavoisiers really wanted something that looked not only showy because the scale was just kind of insane. I still can't quite believe. And there are actually ways that you look at the painting and you understand things that he was thinking through. He's trying to sort of solve, how do I, how do I justify such a huge canvas for people who aren't that, they're important, but they're not that important. How can I make it work? Um, so it's kind of challenging both the, the, the scale um, and the format. So they, they sort of must've known what they were doing um, about that. Now you have to imagine both of these objects um, in their intended settings. I mean, they make quite a quite a statement. Um, what do we know about the the painting and where it was originally hung? Right. So, um, well, as I say, you know, I think that there's a real sense that it must have always been intended to hang at the salon. That's what artists knew. That's how they were going to be splashy. I've even wondered because of its scale whether. Um, they intended it to eventually end up at the Academy of Scientists uh, or Science in, in, in Paris. And I say that because they, ha they actually had no, no children. They had no direct heirs. It's kind of an unusual thing to commission this massive thing of yourselves. Um, what we do know is essentially it stayed uh, with uh, her. And what I found actually in recent research when going through her inventories is pretty touchingly, actually, as the revolutionary authorities um, sees basically everything. She's allowed to choose two things. Uh, you know, her husband has been murdered as, as has her father. Um, she's allowed two things and she chooses this painting um, and, a, and a kind of toilet set, a silver kind of, you know, brushes and combs and something to, to, to quite kind of, uh, I mean, she was a very fortunate woman in other ways. I mean, she's incredibly privileged, but it's a very kind of touching. It's one of the two things that she chooses. That, that is amazing. I mean, and and the thing is, with his painting, you know, with the silver, the silver um, brushes, the, uh, the set, you know, there's some value there. But this painting, it's it's a purely emotional thing. Um, Catherine, now the desk and bookcase, I think, is interesting. I think you mentioned this. We know that it is what some antique dealers might call a marriage, but it was a a proper marriage, right? I mean, these two pieces come at two different dates. So what do we know about the the patron who not only 
commissions it, commissions the desk, but then goes back. Yeah. Some years later. Yeah. So he is a prominent uh, member of the of Martinsburg um, in Berkeley County at this time. He was a lawyer, but he was also the leader of the Federalist Party. Um, and so again, I think that there's there's no um, coincidence there um, that he commissioned this piece from Shearer. I think I would guess that he was probably pretty attracted to Shearer's style, um, but that he um, liked it enough to go back five years later to commission this bookcase. I mean, I, I confess I don't know how many other people would have been in that particular area for him to, you know, commission for work. But, um, you know, if it, if, if the piece or the cartoon that Shear had drawn had drawn on the back of that drawer offended him in any way, I'm certain that this man, Mr. Pendleton, would have been able to find someone else. Um, but he didn't. He went back five years later, and um, I think that he probably maybe found some common ground with Shearer, um, at least in the style, if not um, if if they maybe didn't know each other any more deeply than that. You know, I, I wonder um, in both these cases, I mean, do the artists leave themselves sort of convenient wiggle room? Um, Shearer hiding sort of in plain sight these inscriptions and whatnot. David, you know, perhaps um, leaving just enough room for um, creatively convenient misunderstanding that perhaps that's a secret to how you how you survive? Shearer does get a little bit more bold with his later works after this. Um, so again, this piece dates to 1801 and 1806, but he his last known pieces of furniture are made in 1818, and he does some more pretty wild stuff. I mean, he gets more and more bold um, with more and more um, overt loyalist imagery. I mean, in fact, there are um, desks where he has inlaid like rampant lions. Um, and so he, I guess, felt no compunction to doing that. It's a little bit of the guessing game this year because there's no real proper documentation for us to look at. Um, but you can tell from his work that he had, you know, these very, very strong opinions um, and a very uh, strong pride um, in, in Great Britain. I would maybe add to that in terms of what that means about what, how important it is to the to the maker that they stick to these particular things. I mean, in some ways, I, I portrayed David as someone who's kind of a uh, kind of it's sort of an awful image of someone who just adapts to whatever is needed, and they just don't have actually have no politics themselves. They just go along with whatever is whatever is happening. But that said, it's I think it's useful to contrast David with someone. Well, well, with a few other things. One, there are any number of artists who do portraits and then they become exiles and do portraits kind of around Europe and other courts during the revolution and they never come back to France. Uh, he kind of chooses to stick around. Also, what I showed for those works during the early 1790s where he's not really painting huge paintings, rather he's designing festivals, this kind of thing, and doesn't actually produce much on a huge scale. And part of the reason is because he's not paint, he doesn't want to paint still lifes. He doesn't want to paint landscapes. He starts, he'll do things. This is something really interesting. Thomas Crowe has written about this, that all of the, basically the format doesn't suit the times because he's trying to do these big, huge paintings like that one of Napoleon crowning himself. 
But that takes a long time, and the politics were shifting so quickly that by the time you've even started it, half the people on there are out. They're no longer okay, so they're gone, and new people are in. You can't produce paintings during a period of that scale, during a period in which the people in and out are shifting too much. Um, and yet, he sticks to political subjects. He doesn't. The other option, you know, again, would be to go off and do landscape or something really non. Uh, something that would be seemingly neutral, right? It's, yeah. I can only imagine if you were like X-ray, the, um, um, the crowning of Napoleon, like what that would maybe even look like as he's trying to work out, okay, this person, they, he's not so good anymore. Um, you know, Catherine, I'm thinking about Shearer. I mean, he deals with that same kind of issues of personality. So in sort of a different scale, he there are cases where it's not all about God save the king. It's all about, you know, Mr. So-and-so who's a scoundrel, right? I mean, he's... That's exactly right. I mean, I mean, he was pretty um, overt in expressing his feelings toward people as well. Um, but I think it is important to, um, and this is very obvious, but I just want to draw the distinction that, that while Shearer and David are both working in these like very politically tumultuous times that um, David was obviously a very a, a well-known person. I mean, he was um, a celebrated artist in this time. He was someone who was sought after for his work and Shearer was, well, he was not that. He was a guy, he was trying, he was, you know, he was working. He was um, trying to get along basically. I mean, it obviously didn't, he never felt like he had to um, tamp down any of his personal beliefs, but he wasn't under the same kind of threat that David was. Um, and so I think if he was in a similar situation as David, of course, there would have been a lot more risk to um, the kind of work that he was producing and these details that he included. Um, but Daniel, yes, of course, he um, he did include statements about individuals in his community that had wronged him or, um, you know, he was pretty incredible for that. I mean, David, I think you, you make the point about David being being a somewhat crusty individual as well. And um, I, I'll tell you what, if you showed me his self-portrait in prison and told me that was John Shearer, I think I'd believe you. <laughs> well, actually, when I, when I put it up, you know, having looked at, in fact, thanks to you sending, you know, here, I had been reading, you know, about John Shearer. And I was like, actually, personality-wise, you get the sense there could have been a certain amount of overlap both people who know they have something quite specific that they do kind of prickly personalities probably also with their clients um with their patrons um yeah i think so although as as catherine said i think david you know he was you know he's super well known but he also it's a really specific kind of way that artists i think it's always important with someone like him to remember that artists in 18th century france into the 19th century were not kind of random eccentrics like in their attic painting in secret they were actually part of a whole administrative thing. They worked for the government, et cetera. There's a huge structure to it. So they're kind of, the, the most successful ones are also kind of bureaucrats in a way. And that's why when all of, there's a reason that he's very close to Robespierre. It's because he's actually part of the government. He's running the arts administration. So that's, um, so he had to kind of adapt his prickly personality to kind of getting business done, I guess. Which is interesting because because Lavoisier, he's also sort of part of the government and um, he doesn't manage to sort of shape shift in the same in the same way. Um, yeah. Well, and it's also 
Oh, go ahead. Usually said, although it's not absolutely, it's not actually true. But they, people say that that uh, David signed the death warrant for Lavoisier. David was indeed on the committee for public safety that would have had the power to either pick people and say yes, no to them. But he, I mean, he doesn't actually sign it. But but you know, he David is on the. We have no evidence that he says yes or no. He he actually maintains neutrality perhaps he, he, re- he removes himself um and he certainly there's certainly no evidence that he goes in to save Lavoisier who just a couple years a few years before been his patron let alone the crown the king well and think about how much time they would have sat across from each other in the course of a portrait like that I mean I think that's we forget the the sort of close physical relationship that portraiture requires that's true and actually also this there's evidence, it's less clear exactly, but Madame Lavoisier, part of her contribution was not simply kind of doing random things in the laboratory, including all the log books, but she actually was a talented draftswoman and probably took lessons with David. Uh, and a lot of the illustrated texts that Lavoisier published on chemistry are ones that her illustrations were the, uh, were the plates in the books. So I want to go ahead and turn to a few questions from the audience. And I love this one from Jennifer Gray. How on earth did David manage to not be killed by the guillotine when everybody else was? I mean, walk us through his biography a little bit. I mean, how does he manage to um, remain neutral or shapeshift um, just at the right time to do this? Sure. I mean, the, the crucial moment is certainly that moment at the end of the terror. So that pre- that's a relatively brief period, but it's the period most, you know, dramatic that's associated under Robespierre, where where most of the, the people are, are guillotined. That's that's the kind of crucial crucial part. And he, you know, he was associated with that government. Uh, he's put in prison. That's where the portrait is painted. Um, it's unclear exactly why he's sort of spared. I think the, the, the legend, or allegedly he's kind of slated to also go to the guillotine. He seems to have health issues. There's also the, as you can't really see too clearly in that self-portrait, but he has this kind of, kind of, uh, kind of swelling cheek. Um, so he had these health issues that supposedly were, were involved, but I think he may have survived just long enough or postponed it long enough that yet another government had kind of taken over. And certainly by the end of the 1790s, he's able to sort of parlay his skills into, um, into doing other things. There's another, there's another instance of a painter, Uber Robert, who's generally associated with kind of ruined landscape views, who while he's in prison and he survives prison and manages to live into the 19th century too, even though he'd previously worked for the, you know, all the aristocrats. Um, he offers while in prison to paint two big views of celebrating the revolution in order to be freed. So it seems like there was a lot of negotiation space for some of these people. That, that's so interesting. Now, um, Catherine, Bonnie Barber has a question. Um, do you know if Shearer worked alone? I mean, we talk about, he seems to have this very crusty um, personality. What do we know about him within his community? Um, did he work alone? Un- unfortunately, we don't, we just don't know that much about him. I mean, I think our our documents um, from his life are pretty limited to a couple of instances where he shows up on tax records, but he doesn't appear to have anything worth taxing. Um, so um, there's no indication that he ever owned any land. And so from that, we can conclude that he never really had much in terms of wealth. Um, 
he um we we don't know that he was a part of a shop or not part of a shop um but um basically we look at his furniture and we look at all these wild kind of inscriptions and that serves more or less as a diary for him. Um, as I said, he's reacting to the news of the day with these pieces, not just in, you know, secret away drawings on the backs of drawers, but also in some of the inlay he uses. He uses um, he uses his works as allusions to what's going on um, in the broader world around him. But um, I don't think that we can definitively say that he was working within within a shop or with other people directly. Um, you know, the question as well, you know, uh, was he well known and, and well off or wealthy enough to be able to turn down commissions? And I think the answer to that, Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, I think people, he managed to survive, right? Cheer manages to survive. Um, yeah, I think he gets along. I think there's something in the neighborhood of 50 to 55 known pieces by him within this period. Um, and so you know, he's, he's working, I think, um, as much as he's able to get commission. I think that's fair to say. I want to turn back, David, to something you said during your, your talk about um, neoclassicism being this cold and rational thing, but the idea that it's actually sort of a veneer. I thought that was very interesting. But um, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how, um, how you and your colleagues in European paintings are trying to peel that veneer back a little bit in your new gallery installations. Sure. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we found most challenging was the fact that I think neoclassicism on the whole is uh, it's, it's lack of emotional, you know, it's not a Baroque painting where there's like violence and crazy stuff happening. Um, in fact, it, it sort of leaves you with just kind of a, a, a kind of blank feeling in a way. And, and there's something that, that it, it closes down discussion about some of these issues quite quickly, actually, because it seemed to be based on proportions and kind of balance and this kind of thing. Uh, when in fact, of course, much of the, many of these abstract principles completely served all kinds of other purposes. There's a reason that, you know, uh, that France was as wealthy as it was, and it wasn't entirely exploitative, but a lot of it was. Um, and those things are not uh, evident there. I think one of the ways that that even can be summed up quite easily too is also the fact that you know there's this uh starting in the 17th century in french legal code uh there's the phrase there are no slaves in france that that does not exist that doesn't mean that they don't exist everywhere else that france has colonies um and in fact you know the the the, the money that was made off of transporting enslaved people for example, even though it wasn't visible, and there's a real distinction from the United States, of course, is if, even though it was not visible to an 18th century French person, uh, it was funding their lives. Um, and in that sense, uh, there's a real kind of uh, that sense of neutrality that's completely well, as long as we don't really look at it. And in fact, it's not completely true because there were um, enslaved Africans in France itself through all kinds of legal loopholes that allowed for that. But that's just to say that there are certain ways that... Um, you know, that I feel like certain objects, certain collections that do sort of shut down the discussion. I actually think that decorative arts often more easily open up the discussion, and if only because of the way the materials circulate, uh, the craftspeople who are involved often are in teams of people. Um, but it's something we wanted to see how we could 
we could answer. And as, as I said, one of the only ways that that was quite easy to do in the gallery space was through these white muslin dresses, which are ubiquitous in that period, um, and have these multi-veiled um, things. It's very easy to say, oh, they're antique and classical. Yes, but where do they actually come from? Who made them? Very different story. Yeah, I, 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 I can't resist this, but um, you know, the idea that the Portrait of Lavoisier uh, sucks the air out of the room and shuts down all conversation. No. Um, so we have time, if there's any more questions, um, we have time for maybe one more question, but um, while, while I leave it to the audience to, to think about what they might like to say uh, or ask, um, I'd like to, to conclude with a question of mine for both of you. Are these people really neutral? Is neutrality even possible? Or are they just um, lucky and or skillful or clever? That's a very good question. Um, you know, um, I don't think that neutrality was possible for John Shearer. He so clearly identified as a Scotsman, um, uh, as a North Briton. That's something that he he uh, wrote on one of his pieces. He's, you know, a true North Briton, um, meaning his allegiance was to the crown. Um, I think that, I don't think, you know, he didn't even try to remain neutral um, at this time. And, um, you know, trying to do so, I think would have been trying to deny his own identity in this culture that he was so proud of as a Briton. I think uh, in my instance for David, um, I was trying to think of neoclassicism and its neutrality, but also David, I mean, David, clearly there is again that sense of, and I don't think it's absolutely true, but you know, someone who almost their politics just run with the water and it's, you know, what, what is necessary at a given moment. I mean, I think if, you know, it's sort of like Switzerland is neutral, but that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, it's, it's, I think he's neutral in the same way as Switzerland is neutral. It's, uh, you know, if you dig it all, you find a lot of uh, invested interests. Um, so I think, yeah, that a bit, but amazingly, maybe the word is in a sense, uh, with a kind of a bit of a cut to a kind of diplomatic, um, you know, he knows he, ultimate diplomacy and knowing how to maneuver these things. Well, I think we will we will leave it there, and perhaps that's a good lesson for our own times. Um, you know, being able to um, to know how to navigate the times that we live in. I really want to thank you both for talking about two of my personal favorite objects this evening, two very, very different things from very different places, but, you know, connected across um, space and culture to what is, I think, in many ways, a larger sort of um, human, human story. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing these unexpected connections between these two things. Um, with us this evening. And for anybody with us this evening who'd like to deepen their knowledge, um, we have a few resources you might want to explore on your own. Of course, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has one of the absolute best online collections, and you can check out highlights and more, including the great catalog entry for the Lavoisiers at metmuseum.org. And there's also a, an incredible essay about David in the museum's timeline of art history, as well as a fun feature about this very portrait um, at Met Kids. Um, to learn more about the Shearer Desk and Bookcase, you can check out the online catalog at mesda.org. 
Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about all of John Shearer's works, then you can be sure to easily track down a copy of the book, The Furniture of John Shearer, 1790-1820, A True North Britain in the Southern Backcountry, by our friend and colleague, Betsy Davison. Copies of that book, published by Mesda, are available at her website, elizabethadavison.com. And remember, you can join us next Wednesday, December 9th, at noon Eastern Time for Things, a global conversation about mental health with my colleague, Johanna Brown, who is curator of Moravian Decorative Arts at Old Salem, and Rachel McKay, who is manager uh, of Historic Royal Palaces at Kew in England. Uh, you can register online for free with a donation in any amount at mezda.org or oldsalem.org. And remember, it is your gift that enables us to continue drawing these connections between things and bringing these conversations to you at home. Have a wonderful evening, and thank you so much for joining us.